And the topic this morning is on the problem of worrying and what to do about it. Now, uh, we have a, a photograph or a, a, a portrait here on the screen. I'm going to ask uh, how many people know who this is? Looking around, it kind of gives away your age, I think. <laughs> yeah, this, this guy, is, is, uh, his name is Alfred E. Newman, and he was on the cover of Mad Magazine for many years. Uh, I don't know whether Mad is still published or not. I think in more recent years it has been, but it was very popular back in the 1960s and 70s. That's why most people who raised their hands were over 50, I think. Uh, forgive me if you're under 50 and you raise your hand. Um, and uh, his caption was, what, me worry? So Alfred E. Newman was the kind of guy who just didn't have a care in the world. Nothing bothered him. He didn't worry at all. How many people can identify with him that way? I'll put my hand down. No, most of us, I think, probably worry about various things at various times. And Jesus has some things to say about this in this passage that was read today. Starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, I was raised you know, back in the 50s uh, as a child um, and as a teenager. I was raised on the King James Version. Um, and not the new King James Version, the old King James Version, the original 1611 version. And no, I'm not that old, but um, I'm old enough that I became an adult before the Revised Standard Version and the New International Version came into vogue. And um, so here's how the King James Version translates verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. And as I heard the preacher say that, I thought, that's strange. Take no thought. I, I'm not even supposed to think about these things. For food, I just, you know, just sit at the table and let it come to me without planning or doing anything about it. Of course, when I was a little child, it did work that way, right? Uh, Mom, you know, blew the whistle, we came to the table, and the food was put there. No questions asked whether I liked it or not. But I'll tell you, as a teenager, I took a lot of thought about what I wanted to eat. So it, it could be confusing back then, uh, the King James Version, about some, some of its translations. And so I'm grateful for the more modern translations. Now, the important Greek word here is merimnao, M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. It's not all that easy to say. And the Greek lexicons translate it as to be anxious, to care, to be overly concerned about, or simply, as the NIV puts it, to worry. Now, the word can be used in the positive sense in the New Testament. For example, in Philippians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says he plans to send Timothy to the Philippians, who, as Paul says, will show genuine concern for your welfare. And in 2 Corinthians 11:28, Paul speaks about his own concern 
for the churches. So certainly we are to have care or concern about each other. The word can be used in that positive sense. But the word meramnao takes on a negative sense when it suggests worrying or undue concern about the things of this world. And that is how Jesus uses the term here in verse 25. And he uses it six times in this short passage that was read this morning. Jesus goes on in verse 26 and says this, Look at the birds of the air. Do, they do not sow or reap or store in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, of much more value than they? One commentator pointed out that while the birds do not sow or reap, they do gather. I mean, maybe the baby chicks are in the nest there with their mouths open. They expect the food to come, but the mama bird has to go out and get it, right? So God has, present, has provided the means. Birds gather. Farmers sow and reap. We work other ways and, and pay the farmer or the, or the store to get the food. So Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't do anything about getting our food. Planning and working with God-given means is required. Worrying is not required. Now, the reason worrying should not be involved is because, as Jesus says, God feeds the birds. Surely he will feed you since you are much more valuable than they. So why do we worry about such things? Food, clothing, the necessities of life. Is it because we begin to doubt that God really does care? Do we sometimes whether God really loves us or whether he's really there to take care of us? When Jesus refers to clothing in verse 31, he says this, if, this, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So I think that we can say in the first place that worrying comes from a lack of faith, evidently. And please note that Jesus does not say that his disciples have no faith. He says they have little faith. I guess their faith is too little or too weak to overcome worrying. So the first point we suggest that I think Jesus is saying here is that worrying can be reduced by increasing faith. Now, today in America, we do not tend to worry about food. I mean, even if we're out of work for a while, there's the food stamp program. But in Jesus' day, and in most places in the third world, it can be a problem getting enough food from day to day. And yet Jesus said to those people, do not worry. I wonder, isn't that a little idealistic, what Jesus said? Isn't it a bit naive. I mean, sometimes, despite people's best efforts, there are droughts. There are infestations that, that destroy crops. There often is gross poverty in places for which the people are not necessarily to blame. And so, what about these times? Are these exceptions to the rule that God does provide? Jesus certainly was aware of Destructive weather, pestilence, poverty, and troubling factors like this that make it difficult for people to get the basic necessities of life. We need to consider, for one thing, that God's means of providing are not just natural means, but 
are human means also that God uses. That is, when the troubling factors come, it's up to us to help the poor and the disadvantaged in the world. But you know, we in New York society seldom worry about food or clothing or the basic necessities of life. We worry about college tuition for our kids. We worry about um, adequate health care for the family. Uh, some of us have worried about uh, do we have enough money for retirement. Uh, but many of us worry about enough money to pay the bills, the weekly and monthly bills, and, and we're working as hard as we can, and we still don't have enough money, right? And sometimes we're unemployed for long periods of time. And uh, so what do we do then? And so it is in situations like this, you see, that God tests our faith. Do we really believe in the Heavenly Father as we're taught? Do we really believe that he cares for us? Do, uh, do we believe that he knows what we need and that he knows what's best for us? So this is a challenge or a faith that Jesus is trying to test our faith in, in circumstances like that. You know, Jesus didn't say that God would provide instantly for your needs, right? And so when we worry, when in difficult times, when we worry a lot, we need to ask God to increase our faith so that we, when we can get through those difficult times still believing that God cares for us. So worrying cut, we cut down on worrying by increasing faith. And we need to ask God for it. In the second place, I see another point that Jesus is making about why we worry, and it's closely related to the first. And to see this, we need to look at the context of what Jesus is saying before verse 25. Notice that the first word in verse 25 is therefore. And as the, uh, the old seminary professor used to say, and I guess you've heard this, when you see a therefore in the passage, you, you think, you, you need to think about what it's there for. And so let's back up to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 6, and, and notice some things that Jesus says in these first 24 verses. Starting with verse 2, he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing so that you may be giving it in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then in verse 5 and following, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you that they have received their reward in full already. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting. But only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, therefore. Verse 25, do not worry about your life. You see what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to, to realize? He wants them to practice their religion before God, before God as their loving Heavenly Father. He wants them to do things as unto the Father and not for others to see. Oh, certainly their practices of religion will involve doing things for others. A big part of what they do will be for the benefit of others. But the point is their motive is primarily to do things that please the Heavenly Father and not so much to please their fellow human beings. And that can be a hard thing because we like the praise of men, right? We like feedback as to whether we're doing a good job or not. And if we don't get feedback as to whether we're doing a good job or not, we begin to wonder if what we're doing is really of any value or not. And so it takes faith in the unseen Father, that he cares for us, that he appreciates what we're doing when we do it as unto him, and that he will reward us. And so I think the whole point of what Jesus is teaching in chapter 6 is that we need to live and do our work in continual close relationship with God as our Heavenly Father that we learn to live and do as unto him because he cares for us and he loves us and therefore we want to love and please him. What a challenge that is for us to really live out that. And so the second point then is that worrying can be reduced by living in an ongoing relationship with our Heavenly Father. And, of course, that can only come by, by way of the first point, and that is we have to believe. We have to believe that God is there, that he sees what we're doing, that he cares for us, that he will provide for us, and that he will reward us. So if we walk more closely with God as our companion and as our loving Heavenly Father, we should worry less. At least that's what it would seem. Now, of course, this, this, of course, also involves prayer, obviously. And in this connection, there is another passage in the New Testament in which the word meramnaho is used as Jesus used it in Matthew 6. Can anybody guess what that passage is on prayer? I'll throw out a test once in a while. It's in Philippians, right? What's that? Yes, yes. Philippians 4, 6. And in that verse, uh, the NIV uses anxious and not worry. The King James said, um, Don't, uh, be careful for nothing. <laughs> uh, the NIV translation is, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus certainly was a man of prayer. And I'm sure that that, for him, was an antidote to worrying. In the early 19th century, there was a theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. You can't get a more German-sounding name than that. And uh, he was very influential in Europe. And eventually, he became known as the father of modern liberalism in the history of theology. And Schleiermacher, like so many 19th century scholars, had a hard time. He really wrestled with this picture of Jesus as supernatural. But as he studied the Gospels very carefully, he came to the conclusion that what set Jesus apart from other men was that he lived with an unbroken God consciousness. Everything that God did, or everything that Jesus did and said was from an awareness, a constant awareness of God's presence and a constant desire to please the Heavenly Father. And we see that, of course, all throughout the Gospels. And uh, though I agree with a lot of Schleiermacher's theology, I think at least on this one point, he got it right. Now, none of us, of course, is uh, perfectly sanctified yet. At least I'm not. You ought to speak for yourself. But the point is that even though we may not have this perfect ongoing awareness of God that Jesus did, when we do live an uncluttered consciousness of God, I think it helps us to cut down on worrying. To be aware of God as our loving, caring Heavenly Father and to desire to live in a way that pleases Him will or should help to overcome the undue concern and anxiety about the things of the world. The third and last point I see that Jesus makes here is in verses 31 to 33. Probably the most obvious point. Uh, he says, so not, uh, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. In the third place, then, worrying can be reduced as we make God's kingdom and his righteousness our first priority. Now, the kingdom of God was central in Jesus' teaching, of course. Throughout the four Gospels, we find that Jesus' mission was to bring God's kingdom about by fulfilling God's plan of redemption through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the Messiah and Savior of the world. But here in Matthew 6 and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining the kind of life and behavior that those who follow him into the kingdom should have. They should not only preach and witness about the kingdom, but they should live out its ethics of love and service to others. So in, in saying that instead of running after all these material things of the world as their main concern, as the pagans do, Jesus says his disciples need to make the activity of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, their primary concern. And if they do this, God will see that their earthly needs of food and clothing and so forth will get taken care of. Now sometimes I think Christians make the mistake of thinking that to 
seek the kingdom of God as first place in your life means to, to give up all ambition about a career or an occupation outside of the church. And uh, I, I think that that's wrong. I, I was raised in a church that sometimes had altar calls. And there were two kinds of altar calls. One was a call to come forward and receive Christ as salvation, as you, as you have seen in the Billy Graham crusades, crusades uh, throughout the years. But the second one was a call to come and dedicate your life to full-time Christian service. And uh, what the church meant by that was you're dedicating your, your life to be a missionary or a minister or a Bible teacher or something like that. And we would hear these sermons and, and hear these appeals to the altar uh, as teenagers. And there was pressure upon us to go forward and make that dedication because uh, we didn't want to be seen as spiritually substandard, you know. But I resisted the pressure to walk forward and, and make that commitment because I wanted to be an architect. And I thought I could be a good architect and be a good Christian at the same time. Now, despite the fact that eventually I did become a college Bible teacher, <laughs> I, I still believe strongly in the classic Protestant work ethic that one can be a full-time Christian in any legitimate so-called secular profession or occupation. One can give his life fully in worship to God as a good architect, a good business entrepreneur, a good carpenter or mechanic, a good public school teacher, a good cook or baker, a good musician, an artist or actor, a good banker, a good lawyer, a good physician, a good senator, and a good president. Let's be done with this sacred, sacred secular distinction. God has called us to all kinds of work in this world for his kingdom's sake. But oh, how we need Christians in these various areas. We need, we need Christians on Wall Street who will resist and stand against the corrupt practices there. How we need people in the arts and government and, and in the huge world of education and science. One of the things that, that I think are socially uh, unacceptable is for a guy to brag about his wife. It causes people to gag. And my wife wasn't aware I was going to do this. But I can't help mentioning that I think Barbara is a fairly good role model of what a, what a Christian lawyer ought to be. She didn't get into law to see how much money she could make. If she did, she's a miserable failure. <laughs> she, she, didn't get, she didn't get into law as a stepping stone to high positions of power and influence. I see her as having gotten into law to serve the Heavenly Father by serving others with compassionate and competent counsel and help with their legal problems and needs, and to serve them at a price they could afford. She thinks that what most lawyers charge is immoral, 
And she's had plenty of opportunities along the way to pray with needy clients and to encourage them along the way in life and sometimes with good spiritual counsel, too. Now, Barbara, of course, is not perfect. Oh, how well I know that. But I believe that she has tried to put the work of God's kingdom first. And you know what? As a result, all these things that Jesus spoke of have been given unto her. Now, I don't want these words about my wife to be, a cheap, to be seen as a cheap way of advertising her business because she's trying to be semi-retired and she is, she is saying no to potential clients more than yes. But, you know, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if I had been an architect and tried to do God's work, of, the work of God's kingdom in that field. Not that I think that I went into the wrong profession. I think God did lead me right. I, I better believe that. But this is something for you young people and, and young adults as you're working your way into certain careers and certain occupations to to think about how can I live out my life in this field in a way that puts the kingdom of God first. It's something to think about. And for the church as a whole, not just individual occupations, but for the church as a whole, how can we then do our life and work of the church in a way that really puts God's kingdom first? Well, in summary then, we have learned from Jesus that worrying can be reduced, one, by increasing our faith, two, by seeking to live in ongoing relationship with our loving Heavenly Father, and three, by seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness as our first priority. Now, I'm not saying that if we do all three of these things, we'll never worry again, um, people differ in their tendency to worry. Some people have a strong emotional constitution. They've never experienced depression. They've never, you know, they, they somehow know to keep it all together. And so they don't worry much at all. Others are more prone to anxiety and worry about all kinds of things in life. I tend to be in the second category, actually. But I don't think that we should compare ourselves with each other in this regard, as though it's some kind of spiritual test. I think rather we should measure our own progress. And so our Lord's point is that, that we cut down on worrying so much about ourselves and direct our care and concern towards the well-being of others. And if we do that, then we will be more effective in the work of the kingdom of the Heavenly Father. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, I, I would ask that you would help us each to, to learn better um, what it is to, to live and walk with you day by day and moment by moment in such a way that we will worry less, we will be anxious less, we will have more confidence in you and in what you have for us to do. And uh, help us, Lord, to learn how to live out making your kingdom first priority. Pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.